Hi, I'm Brett Johnson, former United States Most Wanted cyber criminal, now good guy. Cyber criminal, that's right, cyber criminal. Or as United States Secret Service called me, the original internet godfather. Now, how did I get that title? Well, I'll tell you how I got that title. 39 felonies, a place on the United States Most Wanted list. I escaped from prison and I built and ran the first organized cybercrime community. It was called Shadow Crew. It was a precursor of today's darknet and darknet markets. It laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels operate today. Now, look. There's a whole story behind all that that we don't have time to go into today. Why? Well, because today, right now, it's time for the Brett Johnson Show. Today's episode, The Embarrassment of Victims, when we come back. Okay, so we are back to the Brett Johnson Show. Today's episode, The Embarrassment of of victims. So what is that about, Brett? Are we doing a show about victim shaming? No, but I'm sure we will if we've not already. Just so we know that we're all on the same page here, a victim is never responsible for the crime which is perpetrated upon them. It is always the criminal's fault because it takes an active decision on the part of the criminal to victimize you or your organization. I think I've said this on another show before. If I'm not, Get used to hearing it because you're going to hear it over and over and over as I preach about it through all of these episodes. I think it's important today for today's episode as well that I mentioned that. What today's episode is, I, of course, I read the comment section on the YouTube that I'm now on the Lex Fridman show. I'm now on Concrete and I'm on Law and Crime, which the two guys that were on there, I had a blast sitting down and talking to those guys. I was at the Baltimore Fraud Conference. I took some camera equipment with me <laughs> and set up the best the best type of set in the hotel room that I possibly could. I think, I think it actually came through okay. So if you guys could tune into that, I would appreciate it. As I said, I read the comments wherever I get them. On my pages, on the YouTube shows, I read comments every place that I can absolutely find them. And I, I get a lot of value from those comments, whether they're negative comments or whether they're positive comments. To be honest, 99% of the comments, they're very positive and I'm very grateful for that. But I'm also very grateful for the negative comments that come through too, because they help to remind me of where I've been, what I've done, and the viewpoints of others. I don't dismiss anyone who does that unless you're just a straight asshole who is just trying to push buttons. And there are, let's be honest, this is the internet. There are people out there like that. So today's episode, I got a comment and I, I looked, I tried to look it up again. I couldn't find it. I went, I think maybe concrete may have removed it or something, but the guy said that I was still responsible for all of these cyber crimes that are being perpetrated today. So I read that. And one of the things you'll find out about me is I also respond to comments. I read that and I started to type out my response and my initial response was, I understand that, I appreciated it, I agree with your point of view, I can see how you get that. And I stopped as I was agreeing with the guy. And I said, you know, second thought, no, I don't. I don't. I take responsibility for my actions and the crimes that I've perpetrated and the people that I have hurt. I do not take responsibility for someone else's actions and crimes and for the people they have victimized. That was that criminal's choice to do that. That was not my choice. So I put that in there. And as I thought about typing that message, it occurred to me that maybe I need to do a show talking about the embarrassment of victims. It's weird the way my mind works. So what I did, what, what I was thinking about is uh, I've done the online broadcast, I've done the Anglerfish podcast, and now I have the Brett Johnson show on YouTube. And I got to be honest with you, I, I enjoy the Brett Johnson show more than any of them. I really do, because I can get on here and I can... I can work things out. I can talk about stuff. I can, I can bitch, moan, and complain about stuff if I want to. And I can take my time to explain things as I think they need to be explained. If, if people like it and they engage, that's outstanding. If no one was to watch it, I would still do the exact same thing. 
because it adds value to me. I'm a, I, it, it gets me where I'm working through some of these frauds that happen online, personal matters as well, things like that. Now, that being said, this show has been concentrated heavily on crime, fraud, cybercrime, cybersecurity, everything else. I've not really done a lot of talking about my personal life. And I think that's, I think we need to start fixing that. And the reason why I've had a lot of people that have reached out to me after listening to the Lex Fridman show and after listening to Concrete, and they did that also when I recorded the the initial episodes of the Anglerfish podcast, which is kind of an in-depth deep dive into my biography. I had a lot of people reach out to me and even in the comment section on the YouTube channels, they've been saying this, that their childhood was extremely similar to mine. I've had people on LinkedIn that have reached out, people on Twitter that have reached out and have said the exact same thing. I've had people that went on, even though they had a very abusive childhood or their childhood was really fucked up because there's no other word for it other than fucked up. I've had people that had a really fucked up childhood that go on and they lead very healthy lives. And then I've had people who have had a fucked up childhood and they've went into crime, alcoholism. They've, they've really spiraled down and they're very, they're having a lot of difficulty leading their lives, but they've all reached out with pretty much the same sentiment. They've thanked me for sharing my story on these channels. So I wanted to talk about that today, and I'm calling this show The Embarrassment of Victims. And the reason I'm doing that is it seems to me, and Lord knows I've encountered it both as a, uh, as a predator, you know, an online criminal, or even a real-world criminal, it seems I've encountered it as both a criminal and as a victim. So I wanted to talk about that today because it's, it's interesting to me. I say interesting. It's sad to me that a lot of victims out there do not talk about being victimized because they are embarrassed of what happened. They somewhat blame themselves. So I wanted to talk about that. And of course, I'm, <laughs> you'll notice I'm not doing a whole lot of screaming today. Because this is important, and I want to work through this as I'm talking about it. Because I think I've worked through some of it, but I don't think I've worked through all of it. You see, I'm from eastern Kentucky. I've said this before, and I'm proud. It took me years to get to the point where I could say that I was proud to be born in eastern Kentucky, that I was an eastern Kentuckian, all right? But I am. I'm proud to have been born there. But I want you guys to understand that 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 entire area, there's a lot of dysfunction. There's a lot of toxicity in relationships of all types, you know, romantic relationships, parental relationships. There's toxicity. There's dysfunction throughout. There's extreme poverty. There's... um, I mean, it's a closed off type of society because, you know, you've got the mountains around you and a lot of people don't travel in that area. And when people do travel in that area, I want to be fair now, Eastern Kentuckians are extremely friendly people, but we are also aware when someone from the outside has come to pay a visit, we know that, you know, somebody comes in the holler, we know who they're visiting, what kind of car tags they've got. We find out every possible thing we can about them. And then when they leave the head of the holler, we go and ask about, it. hey, we saw you had some company. Who was, uh, who was coming over? <laughs> of course, it's not, that's not the accent. But we are a very friendly people. We're also people that, as a people, we've been victimized as a people for decades much longer than decades. I mean, when when coal started to really come into play, you had a lot of these coal barons, if you want to call them that, that would venture forth to eastern Kentucky and they would talk to these people who own the land. 
they would know the value of the minerals under the land. But they would explain to the people that, hey, yeah, we're not we're not want to mess up your land. We're not want to do anything. You'll never see anything happening. We just want to come in and extract what's under the land. And we'll pay you so much, you know, so many pennies per ton so that you allow us to do that. So a lot of people signed away their mineral rights. And they where they would have profited on a, a really good amount of money, they became more destitute. And at the same time, the coal companies came in and stripped mine the land, raped the timber, to quote John Prine in a song, did all that. And the people continued to get poorer and poorer and poorer. You know, you had jobs mining coal. And certainly that was a job, but the, the mass amount of wealth left Eastern Kentucky. So today you venture to Eastern Kentucky and it's a very poor area. People have a very hard time getting a job. If you're lucky to get a job, that is. For those who aren't lucky enough to get a job, they may be involved, and I've said it before, they may be involved in some sort of scam, hustle, fraud, whatever you want to call it. But that's not what this show is about. This show is about the embarrassment of victims. I'm I'm from Eastern Kentucky, and uh, so I have many victims, many victims from my criminal history. I've talked about that on shows. I've talked about it in presentations. I've talked about it in interviews. At one point, and it wasn't even when I was a um, a beginning cyber criminal. I look back now, and it's it's almost like you can almost you know kind of understand it if I were a beginning cyber criminal. But I wasn't. I was, it was toward the last days and I was, that desperation was hitting because I didn't have any other way to get money to, uh, I mean, I could have got a job, let's be honest, but I didn't have any, uh, any way to pay for the, the lifestyle that I was leading and supplying to the woman that I was in love with at the time. So I continued to steal and steal, and it got worse and worse. And at one point, it got to the point where I was tricking people into selling, uh, sending gold bullion, diamonds, things like that, COD, collect on delivery, so that I could, as soon as I get the package, I pay for it with a counterfeit cashier's check. Started doing that. One of the victims of that was a lady who had saved up a coin collection, a silver coin collection. It used to be that silver, that U.S. currency, the coins were silver at one point. So this lady had saved up, I think it was like 75 pounds of silver. And she was saving it up to put a roof on the house for her and her kids. And uh, single parent. I remember talking to the lady and manipulating her, lying to her, conning her into sending me that silver collection. And I paid for it with a counterfeit cashier's check stolen from her. So uh, that, that's one of my, that's just one of my victims. I mean, we had at one point we had access to, uh, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand E-Trade accounts. And we uh, started cashing out people's retirement accounts. That's another set of victims. I mean, the, the, the number of victims that I have are huge. And the damage that I did is huge. It is. It's, it, I, I wrecked lives. I did that. I'm not proud about it. I don't boast about it. I regret it every single day. But one of the reasons that I was able to do that I mean, even if you, if you go back to my first online crime, my first online crime, and I make a joke about it in presentations because it gets a laugh, but it also sends a message to the people listening that, hey, this, because it gets serious pretty quick from that point. What happens is, is um, I'd found eBay. I knew there was had to be, it was when eBay first started up. Uh, eBay started in 95. This would have been 96, 97. So eBay found it, I knew there was a way to make money, didn't really know how. One night, Bill O'Reilly's on Inside Edition, he used to host that. Bill O'Reilly's on Inside Edition, talking about Beanie Babies, the one they're profiling, is Peanut the Royal Blue Elephant. They're selling it for $1,500 on eBay. I'm sitting there watching like, shit, need to find me a peanut. So I skip class the next day, go around all the Hallmark stores looking for this little creature, can't find him. After about three hours of that, 
because I was a dumbass. It took me three hours to figure out that no, Brett, he isn't in the Hallmark stores. His ass is on eBay for $1,500. So it took about three hours for me to figure that out. But I did notice that about the same time I figured it out, that they had these little gray elephants for $8. So I bought a gray elephant for $8, stopped by Kroger on the way home, picked up a pack of blue writ dye, went home, tried to dye the guy. Well, get him out of the bath. Looks like he's got the mange. I mean, the dye doesn't hold. But I ripped the lady off of $1,500. I found a picture of a real one online, posted it. She thought I had the real thing. She wins the bid. I manipulate her. I'd lie to her and I say, hey, you know, I don't trust you. We've never done any business before. If, I, if we're going to do this, I need you to send me U.S. postal money orders in the amount of $1,500. Once I cash those out, I'll send you your animals. She believed that. So she sends me two U.S. Postal money orders totaling $1,500. I cash them out. As soon as I cash them out, I send her this animal in the mail. Immediately, immediately get a phone call. This is not what I ordered. My response, lady, you ordered a blue elephant. I sent you a blue-ish elephant. I'm not proud of that. I'm not. I stole $1,500 from a lady. And the reason I'm staying and talking about these stories, now later on, these people complained to law enforcement, but I have a whole list of victims and of companies that I have defrauded and victimized that never complained, that never reported what had happened to them. Why is that? That's the episode that we're talking about today, the embarrassment of victims. Now I'm talking about it on the crime side, but this embarrassment, this idea of victims being too embarrassed to talk about being victimized by another human being is, is I think, extremely important because it's, it's, it's almost, it's not even almost, it, in my estimation, it's, it's embarrassment, but it's also a degree of shame. It's a degree of guilt. It's, it's all these things rolled into one. Fear of being judged, fear of being looked down upon. All these things rolled up into one that results in that victim not sharing their experiences, not talking about what happened to them. And it just doesn't, it's not just about cybercrime. You know, today, these days, I have a, I have, I talk and I help, I talk with, I help victims as much as I possibly can. I had a lady that called me the other day. I've got another guy on LinkedIn that's reached out today. He lost $73,000 in a crypto scam. I've not called him back yet because my wife today, she graduated nursing school. And I've been, I've been talking, I've been really engaged with that. So I've not had a chance to talk to this guy, but this guy, he lost $73,000 in a crypto scam. And I'm going to, I've got to call this guy up and, and basically tell him, Hey, you know, I'm sorry that this happened to you, but that money's gone. You're not going to get it. You may, if, even if you did find out the criminal, the guy's name, even if you did prosecute that person, you're not going to get that money back. That's, that's what a lot of my days are, are dealing with victims because I believe it's important to deal with, deal with victims because I went so much of my life without caring about the damage that I was doing to other human beings. I think it's important today. I think it's, it's part of what I have to do is, is help as many people as I possibly can. Unfortunately, a lot of the times you can't. But what I can do is I can tell them the truth instead of giving them some sort of false hope instead of sitting there and saying, oh, yeah, we can get your money back. No, I'm sorry. You may be able to identify the guy, but more than likely, that money's been pissed away somewhere. So that's what I do. And, and, and I kind of got off topic there. This is about the embarrassment of victims. And I wanted to, the reason I say that I, I that these days, I really care and pay attention and try to help as many victims as I can is I think because I've spent so much time looking back on my life 
and the way that I was victimized, the way my sister was victimized, the way my father was victimized. And I've, I've let that, those feelings and those thoughts from back then sink in. And I've really spent a lot of time thinking about that. And I really understand, or at least I hope I do. I think I am. I think I'm, I, I think I'm understanding the damage that I did to victims and the damage that other people do when they cause harm to another human being. So I wanted to talk about that today, you know, and I guess, I guess the way I want to do that, like I said, I'm sorry, but if, the, if this is, this is kind of a learning process for me as I talk about this today, all right, because I've not worked everything out. I've got ideas that are floating around my head. I've spent a lot of time on it. I've spent, uh, especially after this gentleman on YouTube made the comment that I'm still responsible for those crimes. And it hit me that no, no, I'm not. I'm not. The person who committed those crimes is responsible for those crimes. He chose to victimize someone. I'm not responsible for that. I'm responsible for my crimes. I'm responsible for my victims and the harm that I caused. I'm not responsible for the harm that someone else caused. I did the Lex Fridman show. I did the Lex Fridman show. And in the show, that show was the first time that I really have spoken openly about my relationship with this woman named Elizabeth. Usually I joke about it. Usually I gloss it over. Usually I don't even want to fucking approach it because it's an area of great pain. So it was always easier for me to not address it or to make light of it, bring humor to it, things like that. I talked to Lex Fridman and, and I don't know if it's, I've not, I've not watched the show. I've not, I don't, I don't watch my, my podcast, but I talked to Lex Fridman and, and that topic came up and I don't know if he cut it out or not, but what I said was, I looked at him for a second and I was like, and I, I looked at him and I said, fuck it, let's do it. And I started talking about that relationship openly for the first time that I've ever done right there. And I'm glad that I did. I'm glad that I did because as I was talking about it, I started to realize all these things and likes helped me understand a lot of these things that I, I love that girl. I did. I absolutely did. And looking back now, I've had some people say, Oh dude, she used you. Yes. Yes, she did. You're absolutely right. I used her too. Now, does that mean that, uh, that she didn't love me? No, it doesn't. It means that she was in a, she was in a tight spot. She was in a pickle. And I was an asshole and I was addicted to crime. She was coming off an addiction. And I've said before, and I'll say it again, that if you're addicted to something, you really can't love anything else. But the addiction, the addiction will always come first. Lord knows I wouldn't have given up breaking the law for that relationship. And that... That causes me even more pain because I know that I can look back at my life and I can say, honestly, that I would not have stopped breaking the law for that relationship. I'm in a relationship now that I did stop breaking the law for. Well, that and because I chose to break the law that I'd finally had enough. I was ready to turn my life around, but back then I was not. So I've talked about that. And I had enough people that, that really realized, I guess they saw the, uh, the pain that I was having discussing that. So I had somebody reach out to me because I'm not, uh, when I first got out of prison in 2011, I had remembered her phone number and I texted her. I was too scared to call, but I'd been out, I don't know, maybe six months. And I texted her and asked her if she would want to talk. And she said, she just replied with one word, no. I asked her, if it, you know, I sent two texts. Is this Elizabeth? Answer was yes. Second text was, do you want to talk? This is Brett. Answer was no. I let it alone. I let it alone. I didn't, uh, I didn't do anything else. 
I'm glad that I brought it up on Lex Fridman because what's happened over the years is I have always felt, felt an extreme amount of guilt about that relationship. I've always feared that I ruined her life. That's always been a fear of mine. But I talked about it on Friedman or Friedman or however you want to say it. I talked about that. And someone sent me a picture. Because I had never, I I'd had pictures back from, you know, 2005. But I hadn't had anything recently. Somebody sent me a snapshot where it was evident that she was okay. Not only okay, but happy. And I got to tell you, just seeing that lifted a weight off of me. It was like I had this weight on me that, and it was, I, I got to be honest too, it was, it was, a lot of it was ego to think that I could, that me, I could completely destroy someone's life. I was so egotistical in that, that I believed that I did that much damage, that I'd always feared that. I had a lot of guilt about that, but seeing that I knew, I knew it was okay. And I knew she was happy. And it made, it made me, it brought me peace. It made me feel better. And I've been putting a lot of thought into that, guys. A lot. A lot of thought into that. You know, the effects that we have on others. Not only the effects that we have on others, but the guilt that we have and we carry around with us. Either because we're victims, because we're perpetrators because of whatever. And I, that's another thing. I mean, we're never just, you know, I, I've been, I'm a theater major, you know, acting. And uh, one of the classes, one of the instructors, I remember this lesson. He, he was always talking about on stage, you're either a predator or prey. Which one are you? Now you're not always one. You shift depending on the relationship that you've got with whoever else is there in your circle. And I bring that up because, you know, it, it just, the effects that we have on others, either as predators or as a victim, it matters. It matters. I said earlier, I'm from Eastern Kentucky. And there is a point from this, and I'm, I'm sorry if it's disjointed. I am, but like I said, I'm, try, I'm talking this through as we're going, trying to find out some truths as we go along. I'm from Eastern Kentucky. My mom was an abusive parent, highly abusive. I have two, I have two memories, my earliest memories. One is um, me and Denise are in the back seat of a car. I couldn't have been any more than four or five. My dad and my mom are in the front seat of a car, of the same car. Dad is driving, they're on base in Fort Lewis, Washington. They're arguing, screaming. My mom is screaming. My dad never screamed. My mom is screaming. I don't know what she was screaming. I mean, it was always basically, this, as I grew up, it was always the same. I hate you. I wish you would, you would die. I hate you. I'm going to leave you. And my dad would always come with the response. I don't understand what's wrong, Carolyn. What's wrong? What can I do? What did I do? Please stop, Carolyn. That was his favorite phrase. Please stop, Carolyn. Please stop. We were driving. My mom lunges across the car, grabs the steering wheel, tries to direct us in, in, into incoming traffic, and she screams at my father, are you ready to die, you son of a bitch? My dad wrestles the wheel away from her. That's, that's one of my earliest memories. My other earliest memory, and I've talked about this, I think, on both shows. My other earliest memory is my mom had a woman tied up in the front yard. And she was beating this woman and this woman was bleeding and this woman was pleading and crying and asking her to stop and asking her to let her go, just pray, praying for her to stop. And my mom kept beating her. And the reason it was happening is because this woman had cheated on my aunt's, on my aunt with her husband. For years, I thought that that was a fake memory that I had just fabricated it somewhere until a few years ago, my mom had come to visit and and she, something brought it up. She mentioned something. She alluded to it somehow. I don't remember how, but she alluded to it somehow. And I knew it was real. That's the earliest memories I've got. That's the earliest memories I've got. 
And I don't want to, uh, I talk about this, I've mentioned it in a couple of shows before. When I start talking about it, it feels like I'm minimizing. It feels like I'm, it feels like I'm not making it important enough. The stuff that I'm talking about. It feels like I'm not getting the message across with how serious that is. But this, and, and I want to be fair, it wasn't always. My mom was not constantly, 24-7, an evil individual. She could be very, very, very kind. She could be very loving. But she could be very abusive. And we grew up in that. You know, she used to, she would tell me and Denise that, that she gave up her life for us, that she was going to leave and never come back, that we had found her dead someplace. And that wasn't just one time she said that. That was constantly she said that. My dad at one point tries to divorce my mom. At this point, my mom, she starts telling me and Denise how my dad is not really our father, that she had fucked around on him. And, 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 you know, that our dad was somebody else. Well, I didn't believe that. Denise didn't believe that. But, you know, you're young. I mean, I was under 10. You're young. Are you going to believe that? Yeah. I mean, not believe it, but is it going to make an effect? Yeah. Yeah, it's going to make an effect. There was that. I mean, there was, and my dad, God love the man. He would not stop it. He would not stop it. He would let it go on. I remember, uh, I remember we were in uh, we were in Panama City, Florida, and uh, my dad, and my mom, they used they had this king size bed in their bedroom, and they would lay on the bed and read through the day. They were avid readers. So me and Denise, we were doing something. We were playing something. We were young. We were playing. I guess maybe eight, nine, something like this. Before my mom left, my dad, we were eight, nine, something like that, or maybe ten. I don't know. It was young, but. My dad and my mom are arguing in there because, you know, when they were arguing, you could hear them throughout the house. You hear my mom throughout the house. You can hear my dad, too, because it was always, stop, Carolyn, please stop, please stop. So my mom screams for me and my sister to come into the bedroom. And we go in there. And as, I, as we go in, my dad is saying, stop, Carolyn, just please stop. And she's like, shut up, Ray Jane. And then she calls me and Denise over to her side of the bed. And her side of the bed's next to the wall. And we have to, you know, kind of single file it up to her. So I go first because, you know, I don't want my sister. I don't want my sister that close. So my mom's used to smoke these, these more cigarettes or these long brown cigarettes that were in a gray and a green wrapper. I don't even think they make them anymore. They were menthol cigarettes. So she was smoking this and she's, she's, my dad is saying, please, Carolyn, stop. And she's like, shut up, Ray Jean. And she looks at me and Denise, she's like, you know, mommy loves you, don't you? And we're like, yes, mom. And you know, mommy would do anything for you, don't you? And like, yes, mom, we know. And she, uh, she looks at us and she's like, I'm going to show you how much I love you. And uh, she takes a cigarette and she pretends. <laughs> she pretends to burn herself. And that's what makes it even worse. She, she, she tells us, I'm going to show you how much I love you. And she pretends to burn herself. Like she's going to, she's going to burn herself to show us that I love you enough to burn myself. That's how much I love you, except she's not burning herself. And, and it's evident. It's evident she's not burning herself. She's holding the cigarette, you know, maybe a half inch away from her skin. My dad doesn't know that. But he's saying, please, Carolyn, stop, stop, stop. She's like, shut up, Ray Jane. And she's just sitting there writhing on the bed, acting like it's burning her. And I still remember that to this day. And I still remember thinking, well, does that mean she doesn't love us because she didn't burn herself? So there was that. There was my mom trying to poison my dad. There was, uh, there was all these things over the years. I remember at one point, my mom and my dad, this is what, uh, this is what causes... And there was a few things that caused me not to talk to my mom anymore. I've not talked to my mom in about three and a half years. But what I remember at one point, my uh, mom and dad called me into the bedroom. And I was a fat kid. 
I was I was a fat kid. I was not active. I had a I had an Atari, and I like to play that. I like to stay out of people's way. I just like to be by myself. So they called me. They called me into the bedroom. And I undress. Like I said, I was a fat kid. So I had, you know, I had boobs for a boy. I had a belly. I was fat. And they're, they're sitting there talking about how I have, you know, man titties. And uh, I'm not very big down below. And they're wondering if anything's wrong with me. And they're sitting there talking about that. And I didn't talk about that for years. For years. I didn't talk about that until I did the, I think it was the Anglerfish podcast with my sister. Me and today's were recording in, in the Smoky Mountains. That's when I started to talk about that. So there was that. There was... Uh, I, there, there was so much there was so much abuse there was so much abuse I mean it was uh, sure you could it was it was physical stuff but it was the mental stuff the the emotional stuff the negligence she was uh, and it was almost constant guys it was almost constant it's almost constant and uh, I had a guy on YouTube that said that uh, he didn't have any respect for me because I let my sister take care of the problem. I don't really agree with that. You know, I look at it now, my wife says the same thing. I made sure that my sister didn't have to, uh, didn't have to go into that crime didn't have to uh, do all these things that I did because I'm from Eastern Kentucky. The mentality is that it's the male's job to do that. And I took that. I took that and I ran with it. My sister didn't have to do that. My sister was able to get away. Now, that doesn't mean Denise didn't have issues. Right now, my sister's not talked to me in several weeks because I did this Lex Fridman show. And in the show, I said that Denise had a lot of anger. And that niece, at one point, started drinking in order to cope with it. And that's what, she told me that. And I've got it recorded on the Anglerfish podcast when she's talking about it. Well, a friend of hers watched the Lex Fridman show, calls Denise and says, do you have a, speak, a, a, a drinking problem? And Denise was like, no, I don't. And she calls me. And I was like, Denise, I didn't say now. I was talking about, about when you were back in school that you tried to kill yourself, that, that all these things happened, stuff that you had told me. And... And Denise got quiet and she's like, okay, that's fine. And since that point, I called her for a birthday. That call was short-lived. It was cordial, but it wasn't the same. But I'm a, I'm, I'm of a belief that, that this stuff has to be talked about. That's the show. The embarrassment of victims. And I'm sorry I'm not crying over the people that I've hurt. I've done that. I am. I'm talking about the stuff that uh, that was done as a child. I think that uh, I know that my actions are my actions when I become an adult. I know that. But I also, I also know that when you're a child, that you want to do what the, the adults and your circle are doing. My norm was that environment. My, my norm was a mom who sometimes could be very loving, sometimes could be the most evil person on the planet, just lie about anything. Just uh, She was always testing people, everyone, everyone. Someone would, uh, would form a friendship with her or someone would love her and she would, she would always test that. Can I do this to you and you will still love me? The same thing with her kids. We weren't, uh, you know, looking back now, the relationship was one of ownership. And she always said that those are my kids. That's my goddamn child. 
it's my kid. It was one of ownership, not, not a relationship, not a healthy relationship like a mother and a child should have, but one of ownership. So I, you know, I, all this stuff together. And I grew up committing crimes. I grew up because I, it was my responsibility. I, I wanted, I was, I was scared of my mom leaving because she often told us she was, she would. And she always played these games. She would, she would go and then she'd be gone for a couple of days or what have you. And she'd come back and she'd, she'd never tell Denise, but it was always telling me, you know, I'm dating this guy. This guy either killed his wife or this guy tried to rape me or, or any number of things like that. Always to just push buttons to see what the response was, see what the response was. Would I take up for my mom? Would I take up for my mom? And the answer is, yeah. Yeah, I'd take up for my mom. It got to the point, and like I said, I can go on with, with, I mean, dozens of these stories. It's a lifetime of these stories. My sister at one point, she, she gets a scholarship to Berea College, one of the top colleges in the United States, one of the top 50 colleges in the United States. I had scholarships too. I didn't take them. But my sister gets a scholarship to Berea, goes to Berea. Denise gets a boyfriend in Berea. My mom finds out. What does my mom do? She gets in the car, drives up to Berea from Hazard, Kentucky to Berea, walks into the president's office and tells the president that my sister is addicted to drugs, that her boyfriend is actually her pimp, and that her pimp is farming her out to other men, and that she wants Denise kicked out of school. The president believes that. They have a hearing for Denise, a hearing scheduled, and the only thing that saves my sister is that two of the, the upper alumni, my sister was friends with her daughter, with her daughter, and uh, their daughter had seen how my mom acted. Carol's, and her, her friend's name was Carol, Carol's parents had seen how my mom behaved, and they told the president, hey, this woman is crazy. Well, the thing about my mom is, is these facades that she comes up with, they don't last very long. She can't sustain that lie very long. So she always would fall apart. So the president simply questions her about it. She starts cussing and screaming and everything else and falls apart. So Denise didn't get kicked out of school. There were tons of things like that. I get a scholarship. She pulls a, uh, a knife on the guy who offered me a scholarship, threatens to kill him. My first real girlfriend, my first real girlfriend, she, she starts calling and terrorizing her parents. Her parents were, her dad was, my, my girlfriend's dad was a preacher. Very upstanding people. Good, decent people. And my mom calls and starts terrorizing. My mom has terrorized my wife now. And this is, this is, this is what happened. I lived a lifetime of that. And I've chalked it up. So the, the title of this episode is The Embarrassment of Victims. And I've often... And I think it plays a part in it. I'm from Eastern Kentucky, and Eastern Kentucky people do not, men in general too, and I think it's probably men across the planet are like this too, men do not share shit. We internalize a lot of that. We don't talk about it. But I think it's got to go deeper than that. I really do because, you know, I, I apply it these days to that victim mentality. I was a victim. I, never, I didn't talk about that because I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. I felt guilt myself. I thought no one would believe me. I thought I would be judged. All these other, all these, these different feelings and thoughts went through my head. I minimized it. It wasn't, it wasn't that serious. I got to the point, I've talked about this on a few shows. I've got to the point where I was very young again. I got to the point where my parents would leave and I would piss in the floor. And I, it took me 30 years to talk about that. 30 years. I was at a, I was at a conference. I don't even remember. I think it was a banking conference. I was at a conference. I, I gave a presentation. I was getting to the point where I was talking about the abuse. I was talking about my victims. I was sharing all this thing because I wanted to get it out. It was time for me to get it out. And I mentioned that, that I used that at an early age, I used to, urinate in the floor. And I didn't know why. I really didn't know why then. And this woman comes up to me afterwards. She said that before she got involved in her career now, she used to deal with 
abused children and she had seen that behavior and that was a control mechanism because it was the only it was only the, it was the only control a child had did that he got to the point i got to the point that i i assaulted a woman in an elevator i was 15 i've i've seen people online you know talking about that uh, i deserve to be in prison for the rest of my life that i should should die things like that it's very few people but it's people and i understand guys i got people who are out there saying that i absolutely understand it god knows i understand it because i felt that myself over and over and over again through the years i regret that to no end Think about it every single day. And I try to do better. But I, you know, I can rationally say that I was a child. Now, you son of a bitches out there just say, well, that's 15. You know what? That's still a fucking child. I can rationalize it and say that I was 15. But I, on a completely different level, I did that. I did that. Nobody else did that. I did that. So all these things were happening. All these things did happen. And the reason I, I bring this up in the context of the title of this show is that I was, if you want to say embarrassed, I was too embarrassed to ever talk about it to anyone, to anyone. Even when I, when my wife, my first wife leaves me, and I was getting suicidal, depressed, everything else. And I reached out to a psychologist. I did not tell a psychologist everything. I alluded to some stuff, but I did not tell a psychologist everything. Because I, it's, it, at the time, I didn't think that people, that it was okay to share something like that. You keep that to yourself. You know, swallow that bullshit bread. You know, go on with your life, swallow that. I'm of a different opinion these days. I'm of a different opinion because, you know, thinking my life through spending time in prison, being given the opportunity, being given the opportunity to do things right and to live a, a good, healthy, decent life. I put a lot of thought into what's happened in the past, into the people that I've hurt. And there are all these things in my life. I put a lot of thought into that. A lot. I think about it all the time. I'm not thinking about how to, how to, how to deal with security and crime. I'm often thinking about that. And uh, I guess that's what I, you know, I don't know. I, I lost my train of thought. You don't know the truth. I lost my train of thought. Let me, let me get a drink. Got to the point where I was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on the good guy side of things now. I'm, I'm chief criminal officer of Arcos Labs. Who the fuck would have ever thought something like that would happen? You know, I, I, I knew it took me about a year to realize that I could make a living speaking. I'm a good speaker. I've got a hell of a story. I've got a hell of a lot of knowledge. I realized out of the gate, I had, I was very fortunate. I had someone tell me, Hey, you know, your story will sell. You can make money on that. But if you want to be relevant, talk about stuff that's going on these days. Well, I know the shit that's going on these days because I helped create a lot of those crimes. So I always talk about, that. I always talk about my story to a degree. If they want to hear that, they, I was getting to the point these days that, that people are wanting to hear more about the fraud and crime that's taking place today. But by speaking, I knew I could do that and, uh, and make a living. And I was, and then I had the CEO of Arcos Labs. He got to talking to me. He, he had seen the work that I've been doing the past few years. And he had an idea. He was like, you know, we could really help stop a lot of crime. We could bring you in and you could talk to clients. You could talk to potential customers. You could talk to the industry as a whole and get your message out. Talk to them about the way cybercrime works. Talk to them about the upcoming crimes that are coming in, how they can protect themselves, things like that. So I started to do that. Well, as I've been doing all this, and it's before I became this chief criminal officer guy, what I've also been doing is telling people, hey, reach out to me. I want to hear from victims. I'll help you as much as I possibly can. 
and I hear these victim stories and I, it's, it's at the same time, I'm thinking about the damage that I've done, the way I've lived my life, the stuff that, that I've done, the stuff that's been done to me, everything else. I've been thinking about all this. And, and the reason I bring this up is I really believe that being able, and I, it, it's almost a blessing being able to look back at my childhood and come to terms with that has allowed me the opportunity to really start to understand the damage that's being done to these victims that are out there. My victims and other victims of today, of, of these cyber crimes, these frauds, all these scams that are going on, everything else. I, 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 I never turned down a victim. Ever. Ever. Somebody writes me or tries to call me and they say, hey, I've got this problem. I'm going to call you back. I don't know if I can do anything for you. I talked to a lady the other day. Her, her husband sent out $600,000 is what he lost in a cryptocurrency scam. And I told her, she had sent me a message like at 10, 1030 at night. I just got through with a presentation earlier that day. I was worn out. I was laying, laying in the bed in the hotel room, just kind of exhausted. Got an email from her. She passed her phone number to it. And I called her right then. And I told her on the phone, I was like, I'll help you as much as I can. I still got to call her back again after that. I was supposed to call her back Friday, but I've been exhausted. I'm going to call her back uh, Tuesday. So uh, I told her, I was like, look, I don't know if I can help you. I don't know, but I need you to. And I told her the same thing. I got to tell this guy that lost $73,000. I was like, hey, the chances of you getting this money back, I want you to understand this money is gone. It's gone. This criminal has to pay other criminals that he's working with. He's probably pissed the money off someplace. He sent it to some wallet someplace, some other cryptocurrency wallet where nobody else can get to it except him. It's gone. The chances of you catching the criminals slim because the criminal's probably not in the United States. He's in some place where jurisdictionally law enforcement can't get to him. The chances of identifying the guy slim as well because he probably knows what he's doing when it comes to hiding his identity. So yeah. And I tell people, I, I, I believe in telling people the truth. A lot of the times I've dealt with a lot of people out there that they try to give some sort of false hope to people. And I don't think that false hope is the answer. I think that you try to be truthful to somebody as hard as that is, as hard as that is. And to hear these people on the phone when you're telling them this, and it's just, you know, they're, they're one, they're, a lot of them are contacting me because they think that I can save the day, that I can, I can come in and get their money back. And I can't. The most I can do a lot of the time most I can do is just tell them the truth. That's not a pleasant experience. It's not, but I think that, uh, I think there's a place for it. A lot of people don't reach out. The ones that do reach out, and I get a lot of victims. I do, I get a lot of victims. But there's all these other victims. I figure if I'm getting, you know, two to three victims a week, which is what I'm averaging, two or three people that have lost a significant amount of money a week, reach out to me and ask me for help. And sometimes I can help them, sometimes I can't. But if two to three are reaching out to me, the question becomes how many out there are not because they're embarrassed, they're afraid of being judged, they're, uh, they've got guilt over it, they think that it's, it's not as important to really worry about all these other things, all these emotions that I have and thoughts that I have based on my childhood experiences and the way that I was a victim of abuse from my mom and every adult around me. It wasn't just my mom. It was my granddad. It was my grandmother. It was, I mean, even my dad, I love the man to no end, but he was the other adult and he could have stopped it, but he didn't. He didn't. My, my, my sister doesn't talk to my dad these days. I would have grudge against her for that because the man has, has tried to apologize. He understands what he did. You know, people make mistakes. People make mistakes. You got to give them a chance to turn things around. You got to give them a chance to, uh, to find redemption. I see that most people on that, that reach out to me, either in the comment sections of these, these shows that I'm doing, most people understand that there's a, there's a section of the population that evidently believes that no one, that someone like me can't change. I don't believe that. I think everyone, everyone has the capacity to change. Everyone. So I wanted to do this show today, talking about the embarrassment of victims. 
how important it is for, for victims to understand that the only person responsible for you being victimized is the victimizer. It's never the victim. It's, it's the victimizer. It's the person who is hurting you, who, who is causing harm. It is never the fault of the victim. You know, we see, you see these jokes. They're, they're bad jokes. You see these jokes about uh, abused women. Or you see this thought process. Well, what did she do to set him off? She didn't do a goddamn thing to set him off. I don't care what she did. She could shit in his bed. Huh? She could shit on his side of the bed. If he reaches out and hits her, guess what? That ain't her fault that he hit her. Same thing for a man. I don't care what a man does. If a woman abuses him, that ain't his fault. That's her fault. She chose to do that. Man abuses a woman. He chose. He made an active decision to do that. There is nothing. There is nothing that justifies one human being abusing another physically, mentally, emotionally, verbally. If you're with children negligent toward the kids, there's nothing that justifies that. That is always on the part of that perpetrator, always. The full onus, the full responsibility of that is on the part of that. When I, when I committed all my crimes, there is not one thing that any victim did that brought that on. It was my active decision to victimize those people, to hurt those people, to harm those people. The people who tried to help me out that I, that I then lied to or stole to, that was my decision to do that. Just as those adults in my environment, when I was a child, that was their decision to abuse the children that was there. And it wasn't just me. It was, it was my sister. It was my cousins. It was, it was a whole cycle of abuse. And it wasn't just kids. My grandfather was abusive to every single person around him. My mom, as I pointed out, one of my first memories was her having a woman tied up in the front yard beating her. It wasn't just toward kids. It was everybody they could possibly abuse that they were doing that to. That woman, as far as I know, never reported anything. Why? Why? You know, that's, that's the thing. We're going to do a show on victim shaming. Absolutely. But think about that for a second. Think about someone being victimized. I don't care if it's because of a crime, if it's because of abuse. I don't care what that is. But someone is being victimized, and that person not only never reports it, but doesn't talk about it. What happens when you don't talk about that stuff? Well, it eats you alive on the inside is what fucking happens. It eats you absolutely alive. Until finally, what, I mean, what do you do? Do you, do you re does it result in crime? Does it result in abusing others? Does it result in a life of alcohol and drugs? I mean, I've had people that have reached out to me talking about how they've had a similar childhood to mine, how they had an abusive parent or abusive father, an abusive mother, or somebody that was abusive in their life. And because of that, they were never able to get past that. And they resulted, they had a life of crime, a life of fuck ups, a life of drug abuse, addiction, these types of things as well, of unhealthy relationships, of never being able to have a healthy relationship. And it strikes me that a lot of the reason why is because they weren't able to talk about it. They weren't able to talk about it. They were embarrassed to talk about it. And I think embarrassed, you know, I think that's a poor choice of words, even though I use, I chose that word, but I don't have a better word for it. I just know that uh, a lot of abused people, a lot of victims out there, they internalize that shit. They don't talk about it. It eats them alive to the point where it becomes, I mean, it's, it's just physically, mentally, emotionally unhealthy, not only to the victim, but to every person in that victim's circle. Every person that that victim then encounters gets a dose of that unhealthiness, of that toxicity that's, that's coming outside of them because they've internalized their abuse so, so much. The reason I'm saying this is because, you know, I, I've been, I've had people that have reached out to me and they've thanked me for talking about this, 
for taught, for sharing my, my, the way that I was abused. And then I, I was able to turn my life around. You know, I tell you what, yeah, I, I, I've turned my life around in that I, I don't break the law. I, I'm with a healthy person in a healthy relationship. I, uh, I work hard every day to do the right thing, but there are still problems. I, I still have problems trying to be healthy, not trying to be healthy, but trying to understand what a healthy relationship is. Try, I, I, I have difficulty sharing things. Okay, thoughts, things like that. I would never, I would never sit down with my wife and have this conversation that I'm having on camera right now. How fucking crazy is that? <laughs> all right, I can, I can share all this on camera for however many people want to see it. But sharing it with my wife or somebody who's really important to me, I can't. I can't. There's something that's fucked up about that, guys. I mean, I'm, I'm able to get it out, but there's something that's fucked up about that. So I'm still, still coming to terms with everything. I'm still processing everything. I'm still working through everything. The point of this show, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I think that the point of this show is, is if I can turn my life around, okay? Someone who was, who was abused as a child, someone who, uh, assaults another person at a very young age, someone who then goes off to be a, a criminal, lead a criminal lifestyle, be a career criminal, serve prison time, escape from prison, go on the most wanted list, everything else. Have all these opportunities to turn my life around that I squandered away. If someone like me can come through that, I know, I know all these people that, 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 that have reached out to me. I know you guys can come through that too. I know that. I think that what it what it what it boils down to is is actually being able to talk about it. That's what I think it boils down to. If you're not able to talk about it, I don't care who you're talking about it to. I talk about it to you guys. I talk about it on stage. I talk about it on podcast interviews. You've got to have an outlet to talk about it, even if it's just a blog that you're writing under a fucking pseudonym, you've got to be able to talk about it. Because once you start talking about it, you start thinking about it, you start processing it, you start to realize that, hey, man, I didn't do, I was a child. I didn't do a fucking thing wrong. Or these people that I victimized, I didn't do anything. I was just trying to buy something. And this guy ripped me off. This guy stole my identity, whatever happened there. This guy victimized me. I think you've got to be able to talk about that because then you start to think about it, then you can process it, then you can work through it, and you can come to terms with it. And you're no longer you're no longer that person that's internalizing this this thing that's eating you alive from the inside. I think that's really how a lot of the way that I was able to come through this was being able was, to, was making that decision to start talking about it. That the outlet for me was stage and video and podcast. And things like that. And I think that's really what I'm trying to say today for anybody that's out there, victim of whatever, of whatever. It was not your fault. It wasn't your fault that you've been a victim of crime, a scam, romance scam, cryptocurrency scam, anything else like that. It's not your fault if you've been a victim of some sort of abuse, mental, physical, verbal, emotional. If you were a child who was neglected, that's not your fault. That's the fucking perpetrator's fault. You got to realize that. And I think to really realize that, you got to start talking about it. Okay. You got to start sharing it. And I, and I know you can't share everything out of the gate because, God damn it, I couldn't. But when you start a little bit, when you just start talking about little stuff, even if you can't find somebody to talk to, you can write about it online. There's blog places where you can write about it online. You don't have to do it under your own name. Just get it out. Just start talking about it. And I think that once you start sharing a little bit, it kind of opens those gates. You get a floodgate of this stuff after a while. And all this stuff starts coming pouring out. And I think that that's when you start to realize that, hey, no, no. This is not my fault that this happened. This is this other person's fault. This is the person who did this to me. You know, it was, it's, it's not any of my victims' fault that they're victims. It's my fault. It's not my fault that my mom was an abuser. It's her fault. 
I think that's what we have to come to terms with. So it's not the happy, normal, loud podcast that I've been somewhat known for on the Brett Johnson show. I don't know what other answers I can give. I'm traveling tomorrow. Presentation. Up in Syracuse, New York. So I'm going to sign off. I hope that, uh, I don't know what, what I hope out of this episode. I just needed to get it out for my benefit. I wanted to talk about it because I had people reach out to me as well that had been uh, victimized and they, they had thanked me for that. And I wanted to, uh, I wanted to be able to talk to those people too. I don't know if it did any good or not. I hope it did. I think that's the way that I've been coming through is talking about this stuff and sharing it. I think that this idea of being embarrassed or feeling guilt, there's nothing for you to be guilty about. Nothing. It wasn't your fault. So I think it's important to share that to get it out and start talking about it. I'm Brett Johnson. This is Brett Johnson show. What do we say? We say, stay safe, stay secure and stay vigilant. But we also say, this is the Brett Johnson show. At the end of the day, just do the right damn thing. I'm Brett Johnson. Thank you for watching. Until next time.